Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. part two of my chat with Margaret Parks of Evergreen Grower Supply, talking all about natural pest control using beneficial insects. If you haven't already listened to part one, you'll want to do that so that you can get an introduction to IPM, learn how to scout for pests, and hear details on fighting spider mites and dahlias and other susceptible crops. In this episode, we dive deeper into some specific crops, including aphids, cucumber beetles, Japanese beetles, and tarnished plant bugs. The goal here is to help you level up your beneficial insect game, to move beyond the usual ubiquitous ladybug strategy, and to get to know some other voracious predators that can take care of your next pest problem. Because here in the Northern Hemisphere, we are moving into spring, and there are going to be a lot of pests. Also in this episode, I asked Margaret about a biological product called Nogal that can help with crown gall diseases in roses and maybe someday, fingers crossed, dahlias. And she'll explain in this episode why Nogal is not available for dahlias just yet. If you have more questions about beneficial insects after listening, we'll have Margaret for a live Q&A session over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network in April. If you're not already a member of the network, make sure you join today to get access to a number of great resources, including recordings of past Q&As with podcast guests. As always, there's a link to that in the show notes. And don't forget that pest control starts with plant health. As we learn from Dr. Tom Dykstra in episode 21, pests are nature's way of taking out the garbage. Plants that are healthy and not under stress are much less likely to attract pests. In episode 25, I talked with Emma Harswell about water stress in crops and how pulse watering leads to overall improved crop health, which in turn deters pests. And in episode 29, I had a chat with Brian Mason, the soil doctor, about balancing nutrients in living soils. He mentioned that more often than not, issues with plant health, diseases, and pests are a result of an imbalance in nutrients, namely over-fertilizing. A great example of this is aphids swarming a crop that's gotten too much nitrogen and has excessive tender growth in the spring. I'm looking at you, ranunculus. (laughs) In short, when you see a pest in your crops, don't just think about how to kill that pest. Instead, unpack the entire environment in the space and identify those stressors and imbalances so that you can adjust your practices to avoid future breakouts. Before we scoot back over to chatting with Margaret, I wanted to mention that I am hosting educational field days at my farm here in Philadelphia again this season. These field days bring together regenerative flower farmers from all over the country to spend a day together getting into the nitty-gritty of regenerative practices. We literally put our hands in the dirt, and I demonstrate how to make various jadam and other natural inputs, and I answer all your questions in person until we're all so tired of talking about regenerative practices (laughs) that we just can't do it anymore. But we spend hours and hours together, and it really does my heart so good. I love opening up my farm to our community, and I hope you'll join us. The first field day this year is on April 14th. Registration is open for that now, and there's a link in the show notes, of course. The other field days will be held on July 14th and November 10th. I'd love to meet you in person and get nerdy together, so please come join me if you can. And last but not least, a shout out to those of you who have taken a few moments to leave a review for the podcast. Thank you, DD Shopper, Carrie 1245 Moonflower Power, Montana Native, and Aim Baird for your reviews. Definitely keep those coming, you guys. I love hearing your feedback, and your reviews help others know that this podcast is worth tuning into. Alrighty, so let's get back to Margaret Parks from Evergreen Grower Supply and hear even more about beneficial insects and natural pest control. I want to 
ask you about a couple other big pests for mm-hmm. flower crops that yeah. you can maybe just give us a very you know, again, everything's context specific when it comes to (laughs) to the ecosystem, to farming, all of the things. But just some quick uh, bullet points about like, so with aphids, what what do you think Mm -hmm. are, what are the ones you would recommend the most in terms of beneficial insects? You know, the parasitoid wasp, you know, like what, yeah, give me some some heavy hitters. So if the, when it's a little warmer and the night temperatures are over 60, uh, aphidolides, is is a really good one. Um, uh, that one is is nice because um, as long as it's not a woolly aphid, like it's not a white fuzzy aphid, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not on petunia, alder, or maidenhair ferns. <laughs> That's okay. We don't really grow too many petunias, and I don't think most yeah. of us grow maidenhair ferns. So you're good. You're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if somebody has like forest crops, they mm-hmm. might have maidenhair ferns. Yeah. Um, I've never actually seen aphids on them, but okay. it, you know, the affiliates won't eat on that. Okay. Anyway, um, I have to get the, the list, right? Um, so, and, and you don't have, and you have to have your circulation fans if you're using them in the greenhouse off for six hours at dusk. So they're a little bit like the princess and the pea of aphid management. <laughs> but if you have that, if you have that environment, um, you just let them hatch in their little, uh, it looks like a little deli box, like okay. you get potato salad in and they, um, they emerge and you let them hang out overnight and there's nothing for them to do, but mate. So then oh. when you go to release them the next day, they're all pregnant, they're, they're ready to lay their eggs. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they're active at dusk, which is why you want the fans off at dusk so that mm-hmm. they can sense with their antennae mm-hmm. where the food is. And, mm-hmm. um, and later on you want them to be able to find mates and then they're also going to do that part of the antennae um and they find the aphids that you don't know about Mm. as well as the ones you do so you um you don't release them right next to the hot spot like you do with some of the other beneficials you kind of put them in the middle so that you encourage searching um and if it's a crop that you know is going to get aphids or likely to get aphids um aphidolides is the way to go it is a weekly release okay for a while um and uh, remind me that we should talk about how to save money on shipping yes by we will. working by yeah. teaming up with other growers um okay and so you can do weekly really releases there um, and they will establish in the landscape um and they will overwinter and they will come back next year and they might wake up a little later in the spring but they they will they will come back um and they like to have um and i think they would do really well in a no-till situation because they like to have a loose moist substrate to pupate in so okay they, they um they lay their eggs and then the, the larvae that does the eating is um if an insect was going to be safety orange in color a fiddle is as close as you can get sometimes they're more <laughs> yellow but they're they're quite orange yeah and um they're a fly larvae so i guess they you can call them maggot but they're cuter than that because they're orange <laughs> and they don't look as slimy uh, so they're quite small and they they just um they attach, uh, they bite a little leg joint on the aphid and paralyze it. And then uh, they uh, suck out the innards. Nice. So, um, and it reminds me like, so Brian Spencer, the uh, Applied Dynamics in Canada refers to the aphids as nature's gummy bear. Ooh. Um, so <laughs> I like it. You know, they're very sugary. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a good so snack. They, and Aphidolides is kind of, I mean, it is kind of, an ankle biter of the beneficials it just kind of it, it it's a lethal ankle biter okay um so but maybe the the gummy bear thing will help it yeah yeah you know, kind of yeah. St- stick in one's mind mm-hmm. um so that's how the affiliates work and then when they've eaten enough then they drop down in the soil pupate and turn into an adult okay and then um, they'll keep going do the adults um, eat aphids too or it's just the immatures okay okay they don't they um they eat a little honeydew okay um, they don't yeah yeah. They don't live terribly long. Yeah. All right. Um, and so that's those guys. Uh, the nice thing about the fiddleities is that they eat a lot of different kinds of aphid. Okay. Um, uh, green lacewings do as well. Um, green lacewings uh, you can't use with affiliates because they will eat the affiliates larvae. Oh, all those right. Little, those little orange maggots are pretty defenseless, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, the green lacewing larvae have these like, giant chomper jaws and if they can grab it they will try to eat it mm-hmm. including each other mm-hmm. um 
so there's you can purchase the the green lace wings in a lot of different ways um, in an orchard situation you can get the adults and they fly around the eggs and eggs are on these stalks that are about an inch tall um, and some species of, of that you might see in in your crops will lay them like just one egg at a time some will be in groups like online you've probably seen those mm -hmm. yep um, and they um, they hatch at different times so they don't eat each other. Mm. But when you're getting them commercially, you're getting a whole bunch of eggs at once. Right at once, yeah. Um, and so you have to get those spread out enough in the crop that they find the food that you want them to eat and they don't eat each other first. Mm. Um, you can also purchase larvae. Um, and I would recommend though, you can get them in a cardboard frame called a hexal unit. Okay. Um, and those, each larva is in its own little cardboard cell so it can't eat its neighbors. <laughs> They're very cannibalistic. <laughs> they are. I mean, if they can grab it, they'll try to eat it. And, right. Um, they, in that, there's like a see-through fabric that you peel off and then you can tap them onto the plant. Okay. Um, if it's a sticky sort of plant, probably not growing a ton of those, but if it's a real hairy plant that hangs onto debris, mm -hmm. you put them lower in the plant. Okay. Uh, so that you're not flicking uh, eggshells and whatnot. Gotcha. Onto gotcha. the plant. Gotcha. Um, and the, it's more expensive per larva to buy them that way, but mm. um, a lot of growers who, it's, you know, about the same cost as like a thousand larvae in a jar, but they, they're easier to check the quality okay. when they're in the cardboard frame. Yeah. It's faster and it's takes a while to release them, but you're putting them where you want them. Right. Uh, and that's kind of the trade-off with mm -hmm. the green lice wings is they're not, because they're not releasing a life stage that flies like with the fillies. Mm -hmm. um, you have to put them where you want them to go. Okay. Um, and you can use parasitic wasps with either one of those. Okay. Uh, and the and and the parasitic wasps are more likely to keep reproducing over the course of the season. They may not work as well if you get hyperparasitoids in the system, and those are yeah. What are those? So the, so the parasitic wasp like lays its egg in the aphid. Yeah. And then the the eggs are developed yeah. in the aphid. And there are wasps that lay their eggs in the parasitic wasp. Seriously? Seriously? I didn't know yeah. that. What? Yeah. But they're so <laughs> tiny. How do they? Yeah. It's like a tinier on the tinier on the tinier. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. There's, there's apparently like people say there's some parasitoid for everything. At wow. least one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are even parasitoids that attack beneficials. Um, it's crazy. The hell, yeah. I I had no idea. And the parasitoid wasps are one of my favorite. Like I I rely mm -hmm. on them heavily. They I never released them. They just came and they they yeah. have loved my farm and they are my number one aphid control at this point. Like I don't even I don't yeah. even think about aphids these days. I'm fortunate. I understand. Um, but I had no idea. Yeah. So in theory, something else could come in and kind of wipe out my my wasp population. That would be very sad. Yeah, you might have some. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so that may like you may have some, but okay. Uh, especially if it's a native parasitoid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's nature's um, fascinating. It's amazing. Like, yeah. of course, there's something wants to eat. That, like, of course. Like, of course, there's yeah. there's another another hungry mouth on the other end of that food chain. Um, yeah, and I mean, it, aphids are, you know, they're a pain in the butt for growers, but they are, they are nature's gummy. Oh like, yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, a lot of things want to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, and it's, that. yeah, it's, it, they, I think they're a big link in the food chain because they're like right at that right size where there's several different kinds of insects and, and various organisms that want to eat them for sure. I, I think they're probably hugely important to a healthy ecosystem, but yeah, I just don't want them. So, <laughs> yeah. so if you, yeah, but... if you, which of those, I'm just, I, mm -hmm. I know boiling it to one is really hard, mm -hmm. but for the sake of helping everybody listening feel empowered, uh -huh. If you chose one predator for aphids, that is just like in 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 average temperatures, like you know, uh -huh. it's springtime. Aphids are going to come. We're probably in the fifty to sixty degree range. Which one do you think is best? Yeah, so I would go with. Um, I'm gonna go with lace wings. Lace wings, because yeah. Um, the commercially available aphidias, the mm -hmm. parasitic wasp. Um, so there isn't a one size fits all 
for the common pest aphid species. Okay. So Aphidius colmani is it will go after most of them, but if you have potato aphid, mm. you would need a Aphidius ervi. Okay. Um, and that's a, a bigger parasitoid. Uh, you can also do a mix mm-hmm. if you want to go the the parasitoid route, and that could potentially save you on shipping because the lacewings okay. are weekly okay. release. Okay. Okay. Um, so that that could that could be a better choice. Right. I wouldn't go to Fidelides until it got a little warmer. Right. But then if you know for outside, uh, you know early summer, late summer, which is a Fidelides there. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And then now I'm going to quiz you on cucumber beetles or Japanese beetles. Like those are two biggies for us. Are there any, I, I personally relied on milky spore a lot to help with Japanese beetles. Um, Mm -hmm. But do you have any suggestions for our growers, like what to do there? So, yeah. So milky spore or nematodes, the the HB nematodes, um, do a good job on um, a beetle larvae. The problem with the Japanese beetles is that you have um, you have the the larvae that are on site already, but then you also have the adults that will fly in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's been some interesting articles published, and I'll have to send you some links on the traps okay. and lore combinations yeah. mm-hmm. that have been used. Um, I couldn't, I haven't, and I actually looked yesterday to see if anybody had used them in cut flowers and published about it. Um, and I couldn't find it, but in orchards, uh, like elderberry or blueberry, okay, um, they were using mass trapping oh. for um, for Japanese beetles, which is a uh, it's a fine line because you can't yeah. have them too close to the crop. Right. I was going to say usually the traps bring them in, which is why I've always avoided the traps. I don't want to bring the pheromones yeah. in. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's why, like, you know, that's why I, I was actually surprised to find that somebody was using mass trapping. Uh huh. Um, and, and these are not small traps. These are Okay. garbage cans oh wow you know, because um the the smaller um you know they, they were getting over the course of a couple of years millions and oh millions gosh. of beetles in these traps Ugh. um and the smaller <laughs> so traps gross. just overflow too fast yeah uh-huh. so um so it's a it's a it's a diy trap um that it's like a big garbage can yeah. with some screens on the side okay because venting actually um improved the catch and the, the lure they were using was a, a two-part lure. It was both the sex pheromone and the plant volatile component. Because, you know, the Japanese beetles, like, one shows up, like, the female will show up, and yep. then the males show up, and they get, like, this feeding shark frenzy thing going on. Um, and uh, and that's what you do not want to happen. Okay. So the trapping, I think, is intended to, you know, get them before they get to that point. So, you know, the... the uh, if you weren't having, if you were getting pretty good results in milky spore, like, I don't think that would be the time I would want to try the trapping. Yeah, it I'm definitely, like... I don't have any issues with Japanese beetles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank, thank goodness, knock on wood. Yeah, I, would, I yeah. haven't, but yeah. I, I do know that that is one of the biggest challenges for most, particularly like rose growers and so forth. There's, there's a yeah. lot of people that really struggle with Japanese beetle in the flower farming world. So knowing that there's some, some large scale DIY trap. Yeah. If you have a link to that, yeah. could you, could you send yeah, it over? Was... I'll put that in the show yeah. notes so that we, uh, we have that. And I think that would be an appropriate Thing to try if there were several growers in an area that were all facing problems to maybe share the cost of a trial hmm. on on one property okay um you know and these would be like probably growers who are like almost i can't grow anything outside anymore right but like that sort of like the pest, that would be when the the gamble would be worth it okay right? okay um because it, blueberries are pretty different than cut flowers yeah 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 definitely so, yeah, I don't think it's directly, that. I don't think the traps would be directly relatable, but I think it would be, yeah, like I said. It's like still good to know, to hear, to to read that information and then like yeah. keep it in the back of your head for future reference if somebody yeah. gets to the point where they're just desperate for, for help. Yeah, with but it. definitely, like you were saying, like definitely don't get one trap and put it in your crop. 
Um, yeah, don't put it. Yeah, yeah. The, everybody listening, <laughs> do not put beetle traps in your crop. That's like the worst thing yeah. you can do. You got to get them far. I mean, you can only go so far if it's just your property, but you you need to, if you've yeah. got a five acre property, you put that trap like uh, on the back corner of the five acre property um, just to keep it far away because that trap actually lures them in. It, it calls, it calls to the beetles <laughs> on the wind <laughs> and then they it, all it come. Does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you don't want to bring them to the crop. You want to bring them to somewhere else for sure. So, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the nematodes could okay. milky spore in addition to okay. something and and you know, for a lot of girls that may be spraying because there yeah. isn't a, a bad control for the adult yeah. beetles. Yeah. And and certainly you can lose a lot of money really fast. Yeah, they're they're a challenge. And and with the cucumber beetles too, do you have the same recommendation for them? Or is there anything cucumber beetle wise? So, and cucumber beetles have um so like Japanese beetle has one generation per year. Mm-hmm. And cucumber beetles can have like up to three. Yeah. So there is a nematode that would be worth trying. Um, the Stenonema carbocapsi um, can be worth trying there. So there's like five species or okay. species, depending on how you dice it up of cucumber beetle. And um, some, depending on, and there are lures, and those can be helpful, um, you know, not in the crop. But, mm-hmm you know, nearby, yeah. you can trap a lot with those. Um, there was um, a lot of the traps that are sold are sold with um, like a yellow sticky card mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. type trap. And you can catch a lot that way. Some, but sometimes those don't work very well. Yeah. And so I think if, if you tried them before and they didn't work for you, try a different lower manufacturer. Okay. Um, so there's several, okay. um, so there's three or four more manufacturers in the U.S. and then um, they may have different formulations, and it would be worth trying different ones. Um, and there are there's another uh, paper that describes different kind of trap where if you've had a lot of trouble, um, and I like, I was happy to run across this paper. If you've had trouble catching things like surfeits or bees mm-hmm. when you tried to trap for cucumber beetles, they had um, a trap where they had um, some a number of small holes they okay. added to the trap so that those non-target critters could get, could get out. out. Oh, good to mm-hmm. know. Cause that was, that's one of the things I have a, a philosophical anxiety about using sticky cards in general, because I often, when I put sticky cards out, and I don't much anymore because I felt like I was getting as many beneficials on the sticky cards as I was the, you know, potential pest. It was like, I, it was just general scouting sticky cards. It wasn't specific to a pest. And I started feeling like, man, I'm just like, I think I'm doing more harm than good with these things. So it's nice to hear there's maybe a, an alternative way of, of going about that. Yeah. And with like the general purpose sticky mm-hmm. cards in the greenhouse, um, you know, one or one or two per thousand square feet usually does it. Okay. Um, oh, that's good to know. Maybe usually, I was putting too many out. I feel like I'd probably put like three out in that space. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, maybe if you if you notice more pest pressure by the door, having one near the door, okay, the plant level might help you find thrips sooner. Um, uh, but if it was a house with roll up sides, mm-hmm. you know, it may may not be as helpful. Okay. Um, because the yeah, you, know, you have more opportunity for pests to come in, but you also have more predators that mm-hmm. are likely to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the other the other thing is like, um, you know, if it is part of your scouting routine to check the cards and change them every week, um, they can be really helpful. Okay. Um, they are helpful to a lot of greenhouse growers, but right. it's also, I know a lot of growers who have pretty good biocontrol programs who are happy with their results and the costs and they don't actually use sticky cards. Okay. Because too much of a pain to change them all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like another thing you got to remember to keep on hand, and then you got to change them. And, you know, and frankly, they're always so darn sticky. Am I the only person that's bothered by how sticky they are? I'm always like, ah, yeah. ah, get off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you get that in your hair. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's the worst. Does definitely happen because I have long hair. Another one really quick to hit on that we didn't hit on yet was tarnish 
tarnish plant bug, TB, TPB. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm stumbling on my words. This has been a, a, a relatively new, I mean, it's not new, new. Yeah. I think it's probably been around in my in my experience for maybe about six seasons now in the flower farming world. And it does tend to pop up and really screw people over um, pretty quickly. And uh-huh. I don't know if there is a beneficial for it. A, that's my first question. And B, if there is a beneficial for it, is it a beneficial we can get established so that it we won't have tarnished plant bugs suddenly swoop in and screw us over? So they're they're not available commercially. Oh, but tell me I can I somehow know. find them magically in my local so, environment. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I actually, this was actually one of the ones that, that, um, that I looked up a little bit more, yeah. um, cause it, it doesn't come up as much out here for okay. us. Okay. Okay. Again, but beetle is the big pain in the butt out here. Okay. Um, and, and like a bug, which is, you know, yeah. tarnished plant bug is a legus. Yeah. Um, so there are, um, there are parasitoids around okay that go after the um the tarnished plant bug but they may not do it on the crops Mm. it may be happening in the weeds okay um like especially the 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 composite plants that the tarnished plant bugs are reproducing on Mm -hmm. so and some of those may be the native like erigerons Mm -hmm. that you probably have even some of the the weeds like remix okay yeah yeah um one of my least favorite weeds ever yeah um some of the eupatoriums yep um some of the so some of the native wildflowers that you might already have okay in your yeah selectively managed weed areas right right um they're called meadows margaret they're called meadows okay (laughs) (laughs) just say that's a nice nice way to put it (laughs) that's what i tell everybody when they come to my farm and they're like what's that over there and i'm like that's the meadow (laughs) really it's just a wild mess is what it is (laughs) but it does it does house for the record having some weeds around in a in a cordon off space we shall say not weeds like right in the middle of your field but having some weeds Uh around is actually really good for insect populations and biodiversity as a whole yeah and selectively managing weeds is is a legitimate approach Mm -hmm. because the um you know they you do there are weeds that are like higher priority to control the things that are going to get into your neighbor's pastures and Mm -hmm. are bad for their cows or horses like those you know those are on the top of our list and um like Pacara on the East Coast, I think is one, Senecio on here, mm-hmm. those guys, um, and, uh, and some of the, some of those other ones. Um, and then, you know, keeping the things that most annoy you from going to seed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but, but a lot of flowers can happen and a lot of, uh, a lot of activity can happen um, around those things that you need to do. Yeah. And there is, um, Oregon State had a wonderful publication that I will send you the link to about, um, 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 evaluating the insectaries that you have. Okay. So you're treating that, uh, and selective weed management is yeah. one of the, the things that they talk about. Cool. Like, even if it is at the end of your row, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, it's not really a problem until it goes to seed. So just right. deal with it before right. that happens. Yeah, but yeah. You can support yeah. some critters before right. that. Yeah, I, I, um, you, you all heard it here first. It's okay to have weeds at your farm because that's one thing <laughs> I think too often we're like programmed to become these like master groomers to have these immaculate landscapes even as farmers i mean everybody has that sensation in their like home lawn um but just in general like having some weeds is okay like weeds are part of the ecosystem and frankly they're they're not weeds they're just nature's choice of plant in that space and and they serve a very 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 important function in our ecosystem it's just again about balance like everything else in the world but yeah yeah, and you can try to favor, like, you know, encourage the native weeds, mm-hmm. quote, weeds, let yeah. the native plants put a seed and things. And yeah. the, the things to watch out for, and it, people aren't going to like this, but I think you should also scout your weeds. Okay. Because um, weeds can, like, the dark side of weeds is that they can be alternate hosts for pests and diseases. Right. Um, and um, so just like you would think about, like, if you were having a fusarium problem, mm-hmm. you'd be really careful with what cover crops you were going to use. Okay. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way. Can, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. So some cover crops can increase mm-hmm. um, the fusarium 
um, it, I forget how it's counted in those studies, but um, they might make it worse in the long run, whereas other cover crops may be more suppressive. Okay. Um, and uh, you would also want to look at your weeds and see like, okay, if you have a real problem with um, powdery mildew, like out here, powdery mm -hmm. mildew is a, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, it gets so dry and, and hot and then um so if you had powdery mildew on say some of your composites mm -hmm. um and composite weeds but you were trying to grow lettuce it's the same powdery mildew uh, uh, it's on lettuce it's okay lettuce, so. okay and there are different different varieties of powdery mildew but right um if it's the same group of plants that powdery mildew can probably go back and forth um but powdery mildew tends to be a picky eater. Okay. So the stuff from the maple trees isn't going to isn't coming down. Okay, that's good no. to know. It, yeah, it looks the same to us, but right, but it's the not <laughs> the fungus. I guess can you know right, right, and tell. Yeah. Um, anyway, the it's something like white fly in Florida mm -hmm. could definitely be in the weeds. Okay. Um, and you know, it could it be worth releasing Delphastis, which is a little tiny black ladybug, to deal with some of that white fly it could be worth trying that okay um in, in addition to trying to reduce those hosts uh-huh um and also you know if you are having a particular disease problem or a particular pest problem like learning about all the hosts for that yeah for that issue yeah um yeah. And, and their and life cycle, things. I find, is really exactly. helpful to know. Is this just mm -hmm. one generation and I got to just get through it? Or are they coming back three or four times in a year and now I need to be yeah. ready for the next flush of them and so forth? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Are, are the numbers going to build over the season? Or, um, so, and so, yeah, that's where it can, can be really helpful. Like if it's a disease issue to, to find a pathologist to definitively ID the disease so that you can you can address all of the, the puzzle pieces at once. So I want to, before I forget, you had said about uh -huh. talking about shipping, saving money. I also yeah. wanted to ask you, like, do we set up a program with an evergreen grower supply kind of operation where we get like regular shipments or is it better to just call you and like panic? No, I know it's not better to call you and panic. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm making this obvious, but um, what, what do you think are best practices and pro tips? Maybe that's a better way of saying what are pro tips for, uh, for those of us who maybe don't know everything we need to know about buying in, in it beneficials and working with a company like yeah. yours. So, uh, you know, we do, like standing orders and in nurseries, we have a couple of nurseries that'll order from, you know, they'll send us a couple months of orders at a time and then they'll just add on to them. In general, I don't think it's a good idea to go that route. Okay. Unless, um, you know, you know, you're going to be planting um, or transplanting every couple of weeks. Okay. And you want to have soil mites arrive for fungus nut prevention each time you transplant. Um but the the danger with a with like a standing order ordering ahead is that you might not um, maintain the priority for scouting that it need, that scouting really should have. Okay. So the different producers have different um, different ordering deadlines. All right. And um, and we are distributors for all the producers except for two. Um, and the earliest, the absolute earliest deadline is like Wednesday at noon. But for most people, Friday at noon is when they need to order. Okay. Um, so, you know, Thursday may be the time that you should scout. And then, you know, if you're new to the beneficials, talking with somebody before you order can be really helpful mm -hmm. so that you order enough, but you don't order too much or you don't accidentally get something that's not going to help. Um, it, or, you know, if you're, uh, if you're not sure it's even like a good time to try beneficials. Um, like I said, like starting with the youngest plants is always easiest because it's easier to look at a thousand tiny plants in one place than it is to look at yeah. Yeah. a field. Okay. Um, you have more time to recover from mistakes, that sort of thing. And the financial risk is lower. So I would, I would, um, you know, look, I, I would evaluate whether you need to order anything based on scouting and okay. whether or not you're going to be planting or transplanting the following week. Okay. 
So don't necessarily set up this recurring schedule because you might just be spending more money than you need to because it's just like, well, maybe you didn't need those things, but they're coming anyway. So, okay, that's good to know. Or maybe you need something else. Okay. Yeah. So I I would, it's, people do it, but a lot of times they end up adding or changing as it goes along. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I'd be, I'd try to try carefully. Okay. And it's, yeah. it's, there's no cost advantage to setting up a program. Is there like, no. you know, it's not like frequent no. buyer club or something. <laughs> yeah. No, they, if you were, I would say like, if you knew you were going to need a lot of affinities, like 5,000 or more, hmm. um, and you were going to need them regularly, it's nice to let the producer know. Okay. Like if, you know, if you know now that you're going to need them in June, um, just because it takes a number of weeks to scale up production, mm-hmm. then, then we would tell the secretary, like, okay. oh, we have a girl who wants to try for the ladies for a week, you know, okay. 18 or something. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So do people, you're saying like, it's helpful to talk to the, um, insectary in advance before you mm-hmm. you place your first order at least so is it okay yeah. for people to just call you and just kind of have like a, a chat you know or is that yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah? okay all right yeah so that the and i and i will also say like um having a conversation in january mm-hmm. about what might happen in may are the conversations that people in the industry really like to have okay because because this is like it, you're talking about the, the possible scenarios mm-hmm. and um, and planning ahead. And, and because you get better results using preventative releases, then the outcomes tend to be better. Less money is spent, growers happier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's less panic. It, it tends yeah, to be just win-win for everybody. All around, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's yeah, good also, to know. Yeah. And if, and if the person you're calling is really busy and they're trying to get out the door, um, you know, and it's an emergency right before the order deadline. That's pretty dicey. Yeah. <laughs> because right. like, what if, like, what if they're late for a doctor's appointment and right. they really yeah, can't yeah. talk to you and you miss yeah. the order deadline? Right. Yeah. Your so, emergency yeah. can't become their emergency. That's just not the way to move through the world. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's just better around for everybody. Yeah. You had mentioned about saving money by uh-huh. with shipping some some ideas for how to save money on shipping because that's such a big driving cost of ordering yeah, and beneficials. For sure, yeah. So um, if you're if you're in like a more rural area, but there are um, other growers that you know you can conceivably meet to, on a certain day each week to divide up the bugs, and you could split the shipping cost three ways or something. Mm-hmm. That that's you know that's pretty awesome. Nice. Um, the, um, and that can save a ton of money in the long run. Um, that's um, somewhat popular with researchers as well, because they're on strict budgets and they can, um, and they can stretch their budget that way. Um, and there are also some groups, um, DMV beneficials, hmm. um, in uh, out of Washington D.C. actually has um, a number of chapters around the country. Um, and their their ben- their website is really awesome too for information about pests. Yeah. Um, but they they do um, you know like basically a buying club, and so they distribute the shipping. They it's nonprofit and they uh, split the shipping across a bunch of orders. Hmm. So it can um, it can make it more affordable for for smaller growers. And that those buying clubs are are really popular with people with large houseplant collections or really large conservatories um where beneficials would be out of reach cost-wise right if they had to pay all the shipping themselves yeah and there's chapters all around the country and yeah. some cut flower growers may be within yeah you know they, they may be within a metro area that has that oh that's cool i n- had no idea i'd never i've never heard of that so that's awesome so that's another another link all right the, another link in the show um, notes everyone I, yeah. margaret's full of amazing links this is wonderful because it, it really helps everybody to have a way to just quickly click and 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 manifest change for themselves so i love that um yeah and and i, I and um we like working with with dv too because they're um they have good good information on their website and mm. um they're they're down to earth people and yeah they're they're saving people money awesome awesome yeah cool 
Uh, I have so many more questions, but I feel like it's uh, I've, I've picked your brain so much. I think one of the things I want to ask about is um, the the environmental factors that influence uh -huh. the effectiveness of beneficials, because I think that's one uh -huh. thing that people that first come to using beneficials are just like, I'm going to order green lace wings, but maybe it's not the right time of the year. So both light and temperature impact uh -huh. the effectiveness of beneficials. So can you just do the, again, broad brushstrokes, just um, real quick, what do we need to think about? Yeah. Um, if um, Before you order, definitely make sure that the, the critter that you're, the beneficial that that you're thinking about is, is well suited to the environment. So um, like looking at Falasis for spider mites, um, it, it does well in the 70s, 60% humidity. If you had temperatures in the 80s and 30% humidity, that's a poor choice. Okay. It's not gonna do well. Um, the results are not gonna be good. So you wanna make sure that the beneficial is matched to the environment. Um, uh, something that doesn't come up outside very often, but can be a factor in uh, indoor greenhouse spaces uh, is fans. Mm. So spider mites, for instance, really like, so I say they, they like Vegas vacations. They like hot, dry, dusty, windy, right? <laughs> like, they, they go over to the Vegas vacations. Yeah. Um, so anything that you do to, to make the environment more Vegas-like is going to be happy for the spider mites and favor the spider mites over the predator. Okay. Um, and even if there is a predator that is more tolerant of that, less friendly environment. Um, uh, it's whatever you do to slow down the pest will help you in the end. Okay. That's good to know. So, yeah. So yeah, like in the case of dahlias, um, mm -hmm. you know, if there's just vegetative growth and you're not worried about getting spots on the, on the petals, mm -hmm. like drench those puppies. <laughs> yeah. If you can afford, if you can afford to make rain right. some medallions. yeah yeah i've done that yeah. done that i uh, thought it was going to help and then that didn't help because I, I was too late but yeah that's always my first resort with spider mites is just get out the sprinkler and just make it rain so yeah yeah and that, that normally is your spider mite control out there yeah yeah because they hate all that mu all that moisture and humidity and usually for the record in the summer times here it's so darn humid that we don't have spider mites out in the field because we are usually very humid but not always. We had a Vegas summer, I guess, is what we did. But I have a question, though, about um, for heated greenhouse space in the wintertime, and maybe somebody is growing, I don't know, I pick a crop randomly in my brain, but um, uh, freesia or whatever, and, and they're yeah. trying to heat their house to, uh, to 65, 70 or whatever. And they end up with a pest problem and then they bring in a beneficial, but it turns out the beneficial is daylight sensitive. Um, that's a thing, right? Where you can end up yep. thinking yep. you got the right beneficial, but it's the the wrong time of the year, essentially. You've, you've um, created artificial spring and that bug still needs a certain amount of daylight to, to yeah. thrive. Yeah. So um, in that, that exact scenario... Um, comes up a lot for Vitalides because they do okay. need more than 12 hours of daylight. Okay. Um, so you can put up a certain Christmas lights, couple 60 white light bulbs. Okay, that's it. Have, that's all it takes. Just get a little uh -huh. bit of something in there. Okay. But uh oh, there's but. always a but, right? Remember it because it's like the princess and the pea. Right? Yeah. So um, it depends on what kind of heater you have. Mm. So if you have uh, root zone heat. Yeah. Um, and that's most of your heat and you have like supplemental heaters, but that aren't running all the time. Mm -hmm. So they, the thing to watch out for is those forced air heaters Okay. in the corner of the greenhouse. Yeah. 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 Where they're just spitting it out directly yeah. on the crop. Mm -hmm. Um, that is enough wind to totally derail the fiddle ladies because really? they'll be coming on right at dusk. And I've seen this in a greenhouse oh. or at a nursery that normally had really good results from a ladies, but this one house, um, and it's actually a problem every October for this grower. Huh. Um, in one house or another, they have uh, aphids every every fall. Um, the heaters are blowing. Uh, it, there's a lot of air movement in the first half of the greenhouse, like after you walk in. Yeah. Um, and the aphids are going bananas until you get to the point where the airflow really drops off. And the furthest part of the greenhouse, the fiddle are doing a good job. 
interesting they, there's too much air movement in the from front those heaters so if you have like the the, the i forget what they're called the inflatable yeah the tubes that's yeah 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 with little holes coming out of it that's okay or that's not okay (laughs) which one is that that's okay (laughs) okay that one's okay it's (laughs) um but if you can if you notice the airflow from the heater Mm um and and like as you're walking you can feel the airflow drop off that's Mm going to be a problem Okay. So, yeah. so I wouldn't try a fiddle ADs in those houses. Uh, that nice was going to be my question was, do you just not use them or you have to turn, the, but you can't turn the heaters off because that's the whole point of having heaters. So I guess that's just like, that's not your, that's not your species essentially in yeah, that scenario. Not, yeah. At that time of year. And it may okay. be that it works pretty well for you in the spring, right? but okay. you need to use lace wings in the okay. fall Yeah. Um, or a combination of lace wings and the aphidias, which may be a better choice, actually, okay. To, okay. to double up. Okay. So when somebody's considering a beneficial to use, they should factor in all the things, heat, light, humidity, airflow. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's a lot of complexity. So when in doubt, call you or call somebody like you and just have a conversation yeah. about it. <laughs> there are actually a lot of people like me. Okay. Yeah. They, um, and you can, you can call and like have a conversation about what you're growing and um, cause it doesn't matter what crop you have. Okay. Um, like if you had, um, let's see, like if you had tomatoes, uh, you wouldn't want to use aureus for some list may not work very well. Okay. Um, whereas if, um, you know, if you had, um, some other crops that pretty much anything I'll use that as a as a host plant. Okay. Um, but you know, like with the the fiddlies, if you were growing maidenhair ferns and you had a whole house of them, <laughs> that then would be a bad choice. Yeah. Yeah. I and, and that might happen on yeah, your yeah. on your side of the world. Actually, I shouldn't say nobody yeah. grows maidenhair ferns. There's plenty of people that grow maidenhair ferns, just yeah, not here. <laughs> I think there's somebody's growing everything, and there, I mean, yeah. there, and there's two. Uh, you know, there's a crop that's you know legal in some states, not mm-hmm. in others. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and that crop seems to need higher rates of mm-hmm. some beneficials. Mm-hmm. Um, and some you know some growers maybe growing you know multiple crops, including that, and that one does need to be treated a little differently. Um, and, um, but as a, as a cut flower grower, you know, you're, I don't think, and I I hope that somebody in the biocontrol industry does know all your crops as well as you do, but I don't think so. Yeah. We're not, (laughs) we're not that big of a player in the overall uh, world. So it's, it's a little tricky or at least, yeah, I don't, I think actually some greenhouse floriculture production is, is well studied and well known, but, but most of the growers, that are our podcast listeners here are not necessarily at that uh-huh. scale and not not using the same environmental control you know it really at that yeah. like we said that if you're in a very 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 well controlled greenhouse that's a whole different um space than trying to put these yeah. you know put these creatures yep. into unheated hoop houses or small little home greenhouses or out in the field um in general so i appreciate that you're willing to even you know, try to work with growers at this scale. That that's an amazing gift that you're giving everybody by doing that. So when in doubt, call Margaret or somebody else <laughs> like Margaret. But if you're if you're really just overwhelmed, it's better to ask for help instead of wait until you've got a a pest issue out of control. Essentially, yeah. And this is a good time of year. Yeah. Um, to think yeah. about like, you know, the to pick one problem mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. one crop. Um, so you might pick like a fungus knot. So if you do your own starts and fungus knots for the issue, mm-hmm. that's a that's a pretty easy place to start mm-hmm. if that was a, a, a particular pest. Um, and there's not a lot of names to learn. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to scout. Um, you know, scouting involves carrots or potatoes. Yeah. Uh, just putting those in. Put the, them out. The See the maggots. And count how many. <laughs> yeah. Count how many you put out so you don't have some stinky produce. Oh, good around. point. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like find the rotten potato. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Ew. Gross. number of listeners 
will be growing in the northern hemisphere and it will be um, where a lot of us are growing ranunculus in an unheated hoop house uh, or very, very minimally heated hoop uh, greenhouse. And aphids always are a problem. So can we just give one like this is what you do because you're going to you're going to see aphids in about uh, one month. What, What would you suggest? The green lace wings? So, if you really wanted to try beneficials only? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you might also have one lab coat spray on hand. Okay. That All has right. a low residual. And, okay. Um, yeah, but probably green lace wings, and you would need to re- release pretty often. Okay. Um, I'd also get some alyssum started. So yeah. That, yeah. You know, you, you could keep some wasp going. Right. Um, and yeah, if it's the... Okay. Yeah. I just I, like I to have actionable, not, actionable items. Yeah there, yeah, there are situations that I can be like, oh, yes, this is this. This is this it. Is, okay. This has a very good chance of success. I can't say it's always going to work because it's right. not always going to work. Right. There's always something <laughs> well, it is nature. Right? <laughs> exactly. We are not in control. Just like everything yeah. else, we're not in control of the of the beneficial yeah. insect uh, um, success rate. So, yeah. um, and cold greenhouses yeah. are just tough. Yeah. Right. I know because there could be such a weather fluctuation, but I do want to just that I think the reality is no matter. No matter what aphids are showing up on ranunculus like that is just they're just a high nitrogen crop. You have to feed uh, ranunculus a fair amount of nitrogen and they are at that beautiful green vegetative stage right when the aphids outside are like waking up and they're like coming in trying to find the good green growth. So it's just you just always have aphids on on ranunculus. Yeah, I mean, the nitrogen goes into the I mean, nitrogen and proteins and DNA and Mm the more they have, the faster they can make the babies. Yeah. And. Um, but the, that's another thing to, to keep in mind. One thing I've noticed is that it's, um, you know, and it's, I think it's really good to be skeptical of new things. So I feel like if you are skeptical of biocontrol, be sure not to hold it to a higher standards hmm. than to a higher standard than you hold chemistry. Um, because the, you know, the, one of the problems with sprays is that you kind of have to keep spraying, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, so and, one and release of beneficials on isn't gonna do isn't gonna do like enough, so to speak. Sometimes, sometimes you get away with one release, but yeah. a lot of times you don't. Yeah. Um, and it depends on the year as well. If the if the climate's on your side, like if you know this year you have a a mild, reasonably wet but not too wet summer, mm-hmm. um, the dahlia is probably not gonna have spider mites anyway. But you had philosophy, so you have less to worry about. Right. Exactly. You know, and um, what if it does get too hot and dry for philosophers? Mm-hmm. Um, what it what did happen was that philosophers was around longer to slow down the mm-hmm. population growth early in the year, so that when it does get hot, there are fewer spider mites mm-hmm. at that point where things get hot and dry. Right. So it's not right. going to happen as fast, and if mm-hmm. you're scouting, you can find it hopefully mm-hmm. sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good to know. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. And then my next question is one I've been dying to ask you because Evergreen Grower Supply is, I believe, the only um, supplier in the United States of a product called No Gall, which treats gall diseases and dahlias have a lot of gall diseases and i know you've already burst my bubble in this so i'm prepared but i would just like to have a conversation yeah. about no gall um who can use it uh does it potentially someday help dahlia growers maybe this is the best question is is can it eventually help dahlia growers because gall diseases are such a big deal for us so um the first thing to make sure is that it's actually crown gall, okay, and not and not leafy gall, okay. So if the and that would be maybe difficult to tell on a dormant tuber, yeah. But if it's during the growing se- growing season, and it um and it, it the gall has a lot of green bits growing out of it, that's leafy. It's that's leafy gall, yeah. And um and that's a different that's a different okay. A so that one we can't help that's either way. Okay. Right. All right. And that one, that one, it is worth talking to somebody with 
with extension of pathologists about effective disinfectants to use on your cutting tools mm. and different ways that you can keep from spreading it around so that when you get fresh stock that's clean and you want to plant also on your farm, you're not spreading the rhodococcus around. Okay. Uh, it, it can infect, um, and I, I don't know a lot about that pathogen. Some pathogens have um, uh, different, quote, I mean, I'll call them flavors. Mm -hmm. the pathologists will, will call them, you know, <laughs> Pathophars or you know, right. they're, they're they're correct terms that I'm not using. Right, right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not saying eat them. Don't eat them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm now picturing uh, frying up some some leafy gall. That that seems really bizarre, but maybe it's tasty. Who yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So um, yeah, it's a different a different kind of okay. The verticacus could okay. be on other kinds of plants. Okay. Um. Uh, and, and that can cause leafy gall and other other plants as well. So crown gall um, is is caused by agrobacteria, and there are a, diff a lot of different varieties. And there are um, some of them can be prevented using no gall. So no gall doesn't actually treat the disease; you can oh. only prevent it. Okay. So so crown gall diseases are really wacky pathogens because the so bacteria in their cells they have different um, different sets of DNA. So they have like their, um, the genes for making themselves and for carrying out cellular functions. Um, and then they also have other pieces of DNA, um, little circles called plasmids. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and the agrobacterium has been called the TI plasmid that actually transfers to the host DNA. And the host then produces this gall okay. and makes food for that for the agrobacteria. Mm. So it's in the plant DNA by the time you see the gall. And whether or not it moves systemically is it kind of depends on the host. So um, so wait, can I, I yeah. can I just ask real uh -huh. quick? So it's a bacteria that's uh -huh. initially causing the problem, but then it becomes essentially viral in the plant. So yeah, so the, the bacterium itself. Isn't making the the gall right? It's it's that TI plasmid that's transferring DNA to a yeah. host plant. It's it's so it is acting like a virus, right? Because right, that's yeah, because it's changing the DNA. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> it's um, so it's getting the host to make the gall and yeah. produce more food. Yeah. Um, and and so something to keep in mind is if you think you might have crown gall, um. You and you want to send a sample for testing. That needs to be a pretty fresh gall. Mm. It can't be like an old crappy one that's falling apart. Um, it needs to be um, like actively being produced by the plant so that the um, the pathologist can actually recover. Okay. The and, and tell that it is crown gall. Okay, so dig it and send it in right away. <laughs> like dig it yeah, up, and, nail it. Okay. Yeah, and you and you won't see. Um, um, the, and yeah, talk to them before you send it about like what, how they want you to package it and things like that. Okay. Um, and, and then, so the, the verticacus, the leafy galls, you'll have like leafy bits coming out. But the, the crown gall, um, not all crown gall can be prevented using no gall. So, um, for instance, crown gall and grapes is a different kind of agrobacterium and will mm. work on that one. And it doesn't work on apple trees. Cane berries, it's a, it's hit or miss. Okay. So, um, what we say to caneberry growers, like if, if somebody has a you know a mixed farm where they have you know some berries and fruits and cut mm -hmm. flowers that sort of thing, it, we would um, offer a, a sample package for crown uh, for the caneberries because maybe you have a variety that it'll work on, maybe you don't, and um and then we also get to find out what percentage is actually helping for the caneberries it's a, it's a labeled for caneberries okay. for cut flower growers euonymus if if you have mm -hmm. euonymus as a filler mm -hmm. euonymus can get crown gall um and roses yeah i was going to say would, roses is the one i was thinking yeah yeah and and you you may be able to ask the the rose producer that like your bag miners from or whoever if they're using no gall um or the competitor's product um, to make sure that it's actually um, actually um, been treated before you got it, and then you can treat it right before okay. you plant. And it basically just mix it uh, in water and dip. Okay. And then 
but the oh, okay. the no gall is only licensed or approved or whatever in um mm -hmm. or labeled i guess i should say for certain states in the u.s so far right yeah so it's pretty limited in, in like a hand, handful of states yeah and those okay. are like the um uh, so the big the big crops that, that use no call are the fruit tree rootstocks, mm. um, uh, ornamental cherry rootstocks, ornamental cherries. Um, those are really prone to to crown gall in the, uh, and so that's where that's where a lot of it's being used um, in roses. Okay. So euonymus isn't a huge crop for anybody. Yeah. yeah. But but if the if there is enough demand from a grower group and they and they have crown gall um, on a on a crop that's on the label, mm -hmm. then uh, it's definitely worth, um, you know, sending us an email or giving us a call mm -hmm. and letting us know, like we have this many people that would want this much of it. Okay. Uh, and we can see, and we can you know, look at registration. Okay. Um, um, adding crops to the label is a different kind of worms. One. Oh, yeah. Drips. <laughs> but in that case, if if there really is like, if it is actually crown gall on dahlias, mm -hmm. um, it would be it would still be worth you know if there's a researcher somewhere who wants to do trials yes is there a um, researcher listening to this podcast please <laughs> help us get that yeah. on the label <laughs> yeah, yeah the first step would, it would take years to get it on the label yeah but um but there is you know the first step would be knowing like is the if, if it is crown gall is the agrobacterium causing crown gall and dahlias is that one that can be prevented yeah. no gall okay that's and good to know how it works, even just in general. But I'm curious, what is the actual um, <laughs> active like ingredient in, in crown yeah. gall? Like, what is it do? Or um, no gall, not crown gall. What does it do? What, what is its function that stops gall? Yeah, so uh, this is where it gets fun. The, it's another agrobacterium. Mm. Bacterial and bacterial <laughs> war. Woo. Yeah. And so part of it is that the um, the bacterium occupies the space. Mm. So that's part of it. Mm -hmm. It also produces antibiotics naturally against um, against other agrobacteria. So and that and that treats the area around the root zone as well because and, and this is happening in soil everywhere, yeah. the bacteria like bacillus, bacilli are yeah. producing antibiotics and um, you know, a lot of registered fungicides, a lot of biofungicides now are, are bacteria or, or fungi um, and we're using, they're already doing to help us. So the, um, yeah, so those are the, the ways that they, oh, cool. um, the, the no-gall bacterium is actually yeah yeah preventing and, preventing the pathogen from establishing right it's kind of like planting a cover crop so you don't end up with weeds it's like you know well i'll plant this other thing so that i don't i don't have to worry about the thing that i don't want to worry about but then as the no-gall you said it, if it gets treated if like you're buying in roses ask if they've been treated with no-gall which sounds uh -huh. like great advice but then is that like a like a, or, or a not, vaccine oh, yeah. forever so to speak you know for that plant so, or does it only last so long so if you would want to reapply if you transplant or you know so definitely if you transplant you would still want to disinfect your cutting tools hmm. um and you know between plants to make sure that you're not because that is you know, one way that you can okay. move a lot of pathogens around yeah um so it's not it's not a one and done but it is really effective. Yeah. Um, so long as you're, you know, taking other other precautions like right. yeah. sanitation, basic sanitation. Yeah. Well, it just seems great to feel like there could be something that helps address goal, whether it's gonna actually ever yeah. be effective for dahlias in particular. But I, yeah. It's just and been such you, a mysterious disease for like the past five years yeah. and nobody seems to really know how to to fix it. And I know there's several people researching and, and doing doing what they can. But I just mm -hmm. I was just fascinated by the fact that there was a product called No Gall and I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. And it, No Gall was on the market for a long time and then it was not available for a little mm -hmm. while. And then I was really excited that. Yeah. Um, it was going to be back on the market and that we were going to get to carry it. Yeah. Because um, it does work really well. And there is a competitor's product called Skulltrol okay. that may be registered in more states. Um, the 
the big advantage over Galtron uh, is that the no-gal, um, so the one thing that can happen is resistance can develop to, to Galtron. Um, so some of the, the antibiotic producing instructions can get transferred from the, the good bacteria to the pathogen. Mm. And once that happens, it won't work anymore. Gotcha. Um, and no goal won't work either. And then that's that's pretty much it. Um, there isn't really another option. Okay. Um, and aren't, people aren't so into putting antibiotics into the environment anymore. Right. Yeah, it's a um, dicey business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that the advantage of the no goal is that it's missing the chunk of DNA that allows the transfer. Ah. Um, so it's it's it has a chunk missing. Okay. Which so it's kind of built-in resistance. Right. Yeah. Management. Okay. Yeah. So and the um the um so it's you won't if you're certified organic you, you would have to use Galtrol. You wouldn't be able to use Nogal. Um, in part because the, um, you know, like a lot of medical equipment is sterilized with radiation. The peat moss that the Nogal is grown in is sterilized mm -hmm. with radiation, and that's not permitted under organic program rules oh. to have any, um, to have anything sterilized in that way. Oh, I so, didn't know that. And that, and having that like chunk missing, um, which is not like. It's not transgenic or anything. Right, yeah, but it's like modified um, yeah. in some way, yeah. It okay. has a piece missing, which okay. is a very, very different thing than... Right, adding. Um, what we typically think of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. nothing is added. Nothing's <laughs> added, or, just or, taken or, out. Or rearranged. Yeah, <laughs> right. so it's yeah. missing that. Okay. Um, and it, um, so those things make it, you know, it's never going to be an Omri listed. Yeah. It does work really well. Okay, cool. Well, it's good to know it exists. And thank you for yeah. walking me through all of that. I'm still a little bummed that it's not um, actually available in Pennsylvania, but that's okay. Uh, maybe someday, somewhere, uh, we'll figure it out. But um, thank you, Margaret, for all of this amazing information that you've distilled for our listeners. I know they're going to be um, feel a lot better. They're going to feel like I get it. I know it. I understand it. So I really appreciate all the time you've given me. That was that was quite a long chat. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. And I'll send you, I have a, a list of things. Cool. And I'll send these to you. And if there's things missing, let me know. Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.